stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And John, uh, we uh, uh, we have a lot to cover today, but I thought I would start with the reply brief that we filed in our U.S. Supreme Court case uh, this week. We've talked about this case many times on the show before. This is Securities and Exchange Commission v. Michelle Cochran. NCLA represents uh, Michelle Cochran in this case involving whether or not district courts have jurisdiction over constitutional challenges to SEC tribunals. So Michelle Cochran was sued by the SEC. She went through the whole process with a defective administrative law judge. We know the judge was defective because of the Supreme Court case in Lucia, uh, was improperly appointed. They sent her back to go through the process a second time. And we said, wait, there's still a defect with the ALJ because there's this unconstitutional removal problem. Uh, the, The president can't remove these ALJs. And even though they're principal officers, that's a problem. We don't want her to have to go through this whole process again, just to have the whole thing, uh, you know, sort of predestined to be reversed again and have to go through it a third time uh, before she ever gets to an Article Three court to, uh, to on the substance of the SEC's charges against her. And so we brought, uh, NCLA brought in federal district court in the Northern District of Texas, we brought uh, a case, a separate case against the SEC saying, there's a constitutional removal problem with SEC ALJs. And the district judge there uh, dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction. We took that up uh, to the to the Fifth Circuit. Ultimately, on Bonk, the Fifth Circuit ruled for us and split with about five other courts of appeals, maybe six other courts of appeals in siding uh, with NCLA and with Michelle Cochran saying that a district judge uh, does have a jurisdiction in this case. And... Uh, and you know maybe not surprisingly, the uh, SEC has appealed that uh, case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Actually, John, uh, to remind folks, the the Supreme Court said that they should sort of grant and hold the case. They didn't want the case heard. They wanted the Axon case heard, and then our case to just be held. And we said, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you're going to take the case. There's some differences between our case and Axon, and you need to hear those differences. And, and the primary one is, you know, they're two different agencies, two different statutes. You don't want ha- you don't want to have them saying later on, oh, you know, and what you know they'll do, Mark. They'll say, oh, well, this is a different statute, so what happened in Axon doesn't matter. You know, they'd say that. They would absolutely say that, particularly because they have circuit precedent, and like I say, in five or six other circuits going the other way, and they would say, well, that that doesn't that Supreme Court case doesn't overturn. Uh, our circuit precedent on this on this point. And I think the Supreme Court recognized that that was likely going to be the path that would happen here. And so it uh, uh, it it granted cert uh, in our case. And John, here's the shocking thing. Uh, Part of why I went through all that was to set up the fact that in these five or or six other uh, cases at the Court of Appeals level, there's a case called Thunder Basin. And these factors under under Thunder Basin are the ones that uh, that the government has used to suggest that there isn't district court jurisdiction 
in cases like Michelle's bringing constitutional challenges to SEC tribunals. And would you believe, John, in their in their merits brief at the Supreme Court, they practically abandoned the Thunder Basin arguments? They don't get to them until about page 50 of their brief because they, they know get 55 pages or something. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's at the tail end. It's at the tail end of the brief. Uh, and it's just perfunctory treatment of those factors, because as we've known all along, the argument doesn't hold water. But the, the use of these of these factors is just uh, uh, it's amazing that as many judges have swallowed this line of malarkey as have swallowed this line of malarkey. But a whole lot of them did. And it finally gets to the Supreme Court. And I guess the Solicitor General's office took one look at this and must have decided, well, you know who's not going to swallow this line of malarkey? <laughs> the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. So if we don't want to lose this thing 9-0, we better come up with some other uh, arguments. And so they did. But the problem is, John, most of the arguments that they've come up with don't go to the jurisdiction question. They're trying to throw out all these questions about finality and and other sort of prudential considerations about uh, about jurisdiction. The, the problem is the statute grants jurisdiction to federal district courts and nothing strips jurisdiction from nothing else in the statute strips jurisdiction uh, from federal district courts or to be specific section 1331, which is the statute that that grants general uh, power to the district courts to hear these sorts of cases grants that power. Nothing in the SEC statute, uh, particularly Section 78Y, nothing strips district court jurisdiction. In fact, John, there's a saving clause in the statute that says that this statute doesn't take away any other remedies uh, uh, that that you, you know, sort of pre-existing ones that, that you have. And that's a difference. You were talking about difference between the SEC in our case and the FTC in the Axon case. We have a saving clause in our statute, and uh, and I don't believe there is one. Uh, in the in the FTC statute. Now, we think that there's also jurisdiction in the FTC context. So we think that the Supreme Court should come out the same way in both of these cases. Uh, but if there were to be a distinction, John, it would be uh, in favor of, of Michelle Cochran. The, the, the argument is even stronger uh, in her case, in part because of this, uh, this saving clause. So so district courts clearly have jurisdiction over structural constitutional challenges uh, to the SEC's administrative regime. We have ordinary principles of statutory interpretation on our side that compel this uh, conclusion. Uh, we have a prior Supreme Court case on point called Free Enterprise Fund. Uh, from And it's not even an old case, John. It's only about, what, 10 or 12 years old, Free Enterprise no, Fund? No, I know that my colleague Peggy Little doesn't like the term, the trilogy, but some of the courts call the, the that, you know, Free Enterprise and the other two uh, as as the trilogy, but that is true. The free enterprise, they're all from when we've been practicing law. They're not like some ancient thing. They should have been followed. I, I don't know why free enterprise has been given short shrift and they've all gone Thunder Basin. I, it's, 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 it's inexplicable to me. Yeah, it, it, it is. And 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 the holding, or at least one of the holdings of, of uh, free enterprise fund is that Section 78Y neither explicitly nor implicitly strips jurisdiction uh, from the district courts, and yet uh, most most of the uh, most of the arguments uh, that the that the government offers in its in its merits brief to the Supreme Court are arguments for why jurisdiction is implicitly stripped uh, from uh, from district courts uh, in these cases, which which just isn't true. And then uh, you know even if you go through the Thunder Basin 
factors themselves, which we've done before on this on this program, and I won't repeat that here. Uh, you know, those factors actually favor a granting jurisdiction in this case too. What what it boils down to is there is no final order of the SEC in this case. If if you were dealing with a final order and you were appealing a final order of the SEC, then it's pretty clear that the courts of appeals have exclusive jurisdiction over that kind of uh, of appeal. Uh, but there is no final order here, and this is a collateral sort of argument. And one of the things, John, that the government says is, well, this isn't a collateral argument. Uh, uh, Michelle Cochran is bringing this argument just to just to stop her administrative proceeding. And, and I've got at least a couple of responses to that, one of which is, so what exactly could she bring that would be considered collateral under the government's definition? Because if anything that she brings that would slow or stop the, the administrative proceeding is going to count as not being collateral, then doesn't that take out everything? I mean, I think this is a very convenient rule that the government is trying is trying to force on uh, on the Supreme Court here. And I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to, to buy that. Secondly, it's not the bringing of the district court case did not stop the administrative proceeding. That's just not true. That's not what happened. There was a separate stay entered. The stay is what stopped the administrative proceeding, not the action. You could have had this go along without the stay in place. I'm glad it didn't because, as I say, as I said at the beginning of the of the segment here, this if this had run to its conclusion with a, another flawed administrative law judge, you might have had to re, you know, redo it again, or you certainly would have would have subjected Michelle Cochran to uh, an unconstitutional proceeding. So I'm glad that the stay was in place. But the argument that somehow this proceeding isn't collateral because it was aimed at stopping the proceeding, that's just not that's just not accurate. Plus, uh, it's not it, the collateral inquiry, John. And, and I don't know if you can think of other contexts where courts look at whether or not something is is a collateral uh, attack on or a collateral inquiry. Uh, it, that's a, that's not supposed to be a subjective inquiry. It's not you're not supposed to look at what the party's intention was in filing that in order to determine whether something's collateral or not. It's, that, that, that's correct. And when, what they normally do, what we usually say of a collateral attack on judgment is, does it undermine the original judgment? And here it would it doesn't undermine the judgment. It might it. They there might is say, no judgment. Right. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Correct. So, you know, for starters. Uh, and so, and, and which gets us back to the fact that there's no final order being appealed here, which is why the district court uh, should have jurisdiction. It's why the Supreme Court said there was jurisdiction in the free enterprise fund case. The other thing that that they uh, that the government tries to to create is this invented distinction between uh, investigations and enforcement proceedings. And they say that in the free enterprise case, it was an investigation that the commission was engaged in, and here it's an enforcement proceeding. Uh, that that the commission is engaged in, and therefore the holding in free enterprise fund doesn't cross apply to the facts of Michelle Cochran's case. Shouldn't it be more forceful? Shouldn't it more apply to an enforcement action than an investigation? Uh, maybe. What, what what are you thinking when you say that? Well, I mean, if the SEC is enforcing something against you, it's going to take your liberty. You would think that it would be clearer that the district courts get to to look at that than just an investigation. Oh, I see your point. Sure. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I think that that works as a uh, as an argument. Uh, I, I find that persuasive. I, what I don't find persuasive at all is the government's invented distinction between these two to say that somehow 
when the commission is is engaged in an enforcement proceeding, it can it can act unconstitutionally. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, I like where we're headed with this case. We'll be back with more right after this. Static. Uh, our next segment is on an amicus brief we did uh, in Feds for Medical Freedom, uh, and that is a, a group of uh, federal employees and um, local unions and various other folks who work for the government who are challenging the, gov- the government federal vaccine mandate, and they are challenging it in the same court, in district court in Texas, where um, our clients, the Rodden plaintiffs filed and our cases have kind of moved in tandem. So we are, we put in a uh, amicus brief because uh, what happened in Texas was that the district court stayed the federal vaccine mandate saying that the president doesn't get to direct the medical behavior of the federal um, uh, workforce, basically. Um, And then, and then the uh, panel, three judges on the fifth circuit said, well, we don't know anything about that. What we think, though, is that there is a system in place for dealing with employee complaints. And that uh, system, it strips jurisdiction for us. So this is just like Mark was talking about. The first thing the government wants to do is not go to district court and say why it doesn't need an Article Three judge looking at anything it's done, and that it can throw you into the administrative state, and there you can you can founder and wallow for as long as they can keep you there. And then someday in the sweet by and by, you will get to an appellate court after all the facts are found and you're exhausted or you're, or you've taken a vaccine you don't want, or well, actually that probably- Or you're flat broke. Or you're flat broke. It's exactly right. So it's the same sort of thing. They wanted to keep everyone out of the district court. And the, and the panel looked, looked at this and said, well, yeah, yeah, uh, we don't have to deal with all these hard problems of what the law says. We can just uh, say that we don't have jurisdiction. The district court doesn't have jurisdiction. And so they said the Civil Service Reform Act, CSRA, divests jurisdiction. Well, as uh, Feds for Medical Freedom um, points out in its in its brief, it said, well, no, we, we filed before anything happened to us. And this is, um, you know, these are a lot of people. We're not rep- representing one guy who's complaining that he didn't get an exemption or something. We are saying that the entire thing is illegal and that before the entire workforce is put to this test, we should we should figure out if it's legal or not. And um, we joined, we, we agreed with them, but we also had, I think, um, arguments that the court by if they, if they took if they if they take this bait that a lot of other things are going to come uh, undone so uh what one of the, the first things we said is look this would screen considerable constitutional violations from judicial review if you 
convert all constitutional violations into employment problems and say, oh, well, the employment problems, you know, they can go down there and uh, and, and they can solve the and they can solve this in the, in their grievance processes that we that the federal government has set up for employees, which is kind of ridiculous. Can you think of any uh, constitutional issue that you go to your boss and you say, ah, oh, you're violating my free speech rights? You don't say that. You say that, you know, so-and-so said something that was violative of our policies or something. But you, you can't bring a constitutional rights in, a, in, a, uh, in one of these hearings. They, they always believe they're doing things correctly and under the Constitution. Um, I mean, it's a very, it'd be a very strange federal manager who said, you know, I'm going to act unconstitutionally today and you're just going to have to lump it. That's not how it happens. That's so, right. Take it up with the Merit Systems Protection Board if you don't like it. Exactly. They get up with the Merit System Protection Board. And this is a the president ordered this. So it happened everywhere. So each of the agencies and every every federal employee, this this was going to um, affect the state has stopped that uh, the state continues while, while the circuit uh, takes this up. But then the um, the next one was that. Uh, because this was a pre-enforcement matter, there's lots of there's lots of precedent that a pre-enforcement matter that covers a large group of people is not, you know, is not something that 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 is a merit protection board CSRA type thing. It's 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 a different animal, and it, and no jurisdiction was stripped. And I I mean even even the D.C. Circuit, which is in my view, a place, you know, uh, Judge Jackson, who was just appointed, Justice Jackson, who was just appointed to the Supreme Court, I always point out that one of the things that she got reversed on by the D.C. Circuit, I think more than once, was saying I have, that the district courts have jurisdiction over this problem. <laughs> the, D- <laughs> the D.C. Circuit would reverse. No, they don't. That's been stripped. Uh, That's so right. The D.C. Circuit is a big, is a big circuit for saying, hey, Congress has sent this somewhere else besides the district courts, and they're very open. It's where, to all, that. it's where all good constitutional arguments go to die. Exactly, but even but even they have had precedents where if it's pre-enforcement, it's constitutional right. So, I, I you know, so this is this is really not a place I, I think that the courts want to go. Um, and and I've, I think I've said this before. I'm I'm very hopeful that Justice Jackson will be. Uh, Will, will as a justice uh, stick to our district court roots and say yes, we have jurisdiction. It's a constitutional issue. Yes, exert a salutary effect on the rest of her uh, her benchmates there in the D.C. Circuit. So then, um, so the other thing is, we brought up again that uh, this stay protects the rodden plaintiffs, all of whom have natural immunity. All these people have had COVID. They've all recovered from COVID. They all have uh, antibodies. These are not uh, folks who who are, uh, you know, susceptible to the viruses. You know, we have all the scientific arguments. Well, they were once, they were once susceptible and, (laughs) and they got it and now they're better. So they're right. And, and the other, the other thing is the government's pressing this hard, even though the CDC is now agreeing with everybody on natural immunity and stuff and, and, and pulling back its horns on tons of the stuff um, about natural immunity. Uh, And yet, the court, the, the cases go merrily on with the with the federal government not changing its tune on anything. I wonder um, if the Jay's upset about this. It's like you guys, you guys stuck your necks out on, over at the CDC for for all these things, 
And then just when you decided to change your mind, now we're stuck defending what you said before in all these cases. <laughs> well, I do. I, you know what? We all have clients. Even, even, <laughs> even our, even uh, the, our opponents on the other side, the government attorneys have clients, and and I, I almost sometimes have sympathy. And that is one. This rug pulling out that goes on is it must be it must be head spinning. They'll never tell us, right, Mark? But it is. No, it no, is they won't. To think about. But, but it must be maddening. So the other thing we said is that. We noted that you know there's this there's this case uh, in the Supreme Court where um, smallpox vaccines uh, we've talked about it and and smallpox vaccines were the state the state of Massachusetts was allowed to require smallpox vaccines but one of the scientific arguments that we make here is these are not sterilizing vaccines it it is one thing for the government to say if you take this the spread will actually stop. Remember two weeks to stop the spread? If you if the right. vaccine stopped the spread from person to person, I think, and I guess this is a Michigan, I think the government would be in a much stronger position under the precedent. Right. Because they would be stopping you from being a vector of transmission. That's correct. And so, and but that they don't do that. And they don't even claim that they do it. They haven't even they haven't even printed it up and, and tried to make some cockamamie junk science argument about it. They say, nope, you're right. We don't care. Um, and then uh and then we've, we've also um, brought up that, that uh, sort of the pretext argument that this isn't really to protect federal employees or, or stop man, you know, work days from being people being absent. This is a policy that the current administration wants everyone to get vaccinated. They just want it. And so they're using this power to do something, uh, th this alleged power, I should say, they're using this alleged power to just go ahead and do this on pretext. And then we use the, the statements of the, of the administration's actors about that. Um, and, and so what's, what's happening, um, and I think our final argument that I think is, um, that is in order for uh, separation of powers and uh, the Congress to have, uh, control over over the federal workforce and its laws, the courts really have to take these cases. They have to take a case where it is a broad constitutional violation affecting all employees in the same way, certainly all, all um, employees with natural immunity. And we have a class. And one of the government's argument had been that, well, they don't even have a class, so you can't have a nationwide injunction. It can't be all the federal employees everywhere because they don't have a class action. Well, we do. <laughs> we do have one. And so we were sort of telling the Fifth Circuit that, listen, we're in the same place. We're going to make the same motion. And that's all you do is stop the nationwide because there's no class. There's a class right here protected by it. Well, and I don't um, think you said this explicitly, John, but when I read your your brief, what I got out of it was, Look, if, if they want to play these reindeer games, there's a case right behind this from the same court in front of the same judge, and we can be back here in three months or six months making the exact same arguments if you're going to rest this on the presence or absence of a class action. That is correct. And I don't think we were that subtle, but yes, I didn't put it exactly <laughs> that starkly, but correct. Right. I, I, that's exactly where I was going on that. I don't, I don't, you know, the uh, 11th, so we have another case where the, uh, was it 6th, the 11th? They decided one of these mandates uh, should fall; that it was likely it was illegal, and 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 that they they didn't support it. But they don't support nationwide injunctions, so you got to go back and get an injunction everywhere. So right, that's that's the Eleventh Circuit case decided that, and then our our federal contractor case is in the Sixth Circuit. 
That's right. That's 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 correct. I'd forgotten which was where, but exactly. So um, so we've had this happen before, and I don't want it to happen because it, it is affecting everybody the exact same way. And this uh, nationwide injunction issue is going to be a big deal going forward because it has a lot of handles. There is some force to the argument that one judge shouldn't be able to stop uh, Congress and the president from acting uh, in the way they're, they want to act. But then there, there's the counter argument that if it's really out there, um, that whatever protection is given, every, every American should get it. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a predicament, let's put it that way. But here, it, didn't, it should stay nationwide. We've got a class action, and it's going to be argued uh, on Tuesday's 13th. We'll see what happens.